Since the founding of the United States, there have been many stories about outlaws, legends of men who lived by their own rules, shunning what society expected of them to do as they wanted to. You've probably heard of many of these men. Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, Jesse James. In the 20th century, there was one man who took these men's lives to heart and decided to make their lifestyle his own. That man's name was Claude Dallas, and while unknown to most beyond the most arduous of true crime fans, Dallas would go down in both infamy and history as a sort of New Age outlaw who lived off the land and protected what he saw as his own in the Idaho Badlands. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling independent author Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me once again as we prepare to take a look at a new case this week, that of Claude Dallas. Before we get into that, however, um, I got my normal plugs. I'd also like to thank everyone for the positive feedback I have received on both the six-part Atlanta Child Murder series and the Son of Sam series that concluded last week. It seems a lot of you really enjoyed that, so uh, I thank you again for the input you've given me for telling people about both series. Uh, As for our plugs, if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and MeWe. Just search Author Totten. If you'd like to find any of the five books that I have written under my own name, that would be the Blood Gods Trilogy, which consists of Heart of Man, The Birth of Death and Gods of Fear, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia. You can find them on Amazon, Kindle, and shortly through my website, CorpseCreekPress.com, where you'll be able to get autographed copies of those books at a fairly reasonable price. If you enjoy this show, please... Uh, Go to your favorite podcast app, leave a five-star review, and I will give you a shout-out here on the show. Tell your friends about it. Of course, like and subscribe. If you're one of those who does not like podcast apps, you can also find me on YouTube at Ian Todd. Video versions of these shows, which is just basically a picture of a sound recording with this recording to it are on that channel. They get uploaded every week when the new episodes drop Friday mornings. Book of the week. Again, I'm still plugging away for my friend Alistair Cross. He just dropped a brand new book called The Black Wasp, which is the third book in his Vampire of Crimson Cove series. If you are into horror fiction and vampires, I cannot recommend Alistair's work enough. Again, that's the 
Black Wasp, book three in the Vampires of Crimson Cove, available on Amazon, paperback, and Kindle, and soon to be coming to Audible. One more quick shout out before I get rolling this week to both Kenny and Courtney, they're longtime listeners of this show. They've been supporting it since day one, and they're two really superb people who like my take on cases and how I cover them. And they're one of the group of people who let me know every week whether or not what I covered was up to snuff so far as they are concerned. So I'd just like to say thank you to the two of them. All right, now that everything is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, sit back in a chair, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As you heard in the introduction to today's show, we're going to be talking about a self-stylized mountain man turned outlaw by the name of Claude Dallas. This one's a little different as I like to think of myself as fairly well versed in true crime. Claude Dallas, however, is one of those individuals who, unless you were, you know, an adult during the period of time when he committed his crimes, you probably really haven't heard of him. Claude Lafayette Dallas Jr. was born March 11th, 1950 in Winchester, Virginia. Now, Dallas's father was a dairy farmer who moved the family from the Shenandoah Valley to Michigan as well as Morrow County, Ohio. Pretty much from the outset, Claude was seen to have an affinity for the Old West he spent a lot of his time growing up hunting and trapping on the lands around his parents' dairy farm, as well as reading up on the Old West. Just something about the idea of, you know, living off the land and moving as he saw fit without any oversight really appealed to him. Some have even speculated that he, you know, in his mind, he saw himself living in the 18th and 19th centuries. After graduating from high school in 1967, he hit the road, uh, desiring to live out his dreams, and he ended up on a ranch in Oregon working as a cowboy. And when I say cowboy, I mean the real deal cowboy, riding horses, tending to cattle and sheep and all other types of livestock. When questioned about this later, he would state that he was, quote-unquote, just a man doing his job, modern-day cowboy working livestock on horseback, whatever has to be done. Now, while he was out west, the Vietnam War was raging, and unbeknownst to Claude, draft notices began appearing at the house, letting him know that he had been conscripted into armed service. 
he failed to report for uh, induction on September 17, 1970, and the federal government issued a warrant for his arrest. Prior to this arrest warrant being issued, Dallas had left Oregon and ridden to Paradise Hill, Nevada, where he would work sporadically as a cowboy and ranch hand for the cattle outfits that inhabited the area. And he was fairly good at his job. Uh, A number of individuals started to look on him as a son, with one person stating that he knew more than a father could teach a son. Uh, In wrestling terms, they would basically, they were saying is he lived the gimmick. Which is to say there was no show to what he was doing. He was actually what he put himself out to be. He would stay inside a trailer uh, in in town whenever he was there. But for the most part, he spent his days, nights, and weeks out in the wilderness uh, living off of whatever he could catch. And, you know, some may think that he had issues as far as, you know, drugs or alcohol or something, which is why he really avoided being around town. But that's, you know, not the case at all. In fact... Claude told one friend, the only good buckaroos I know are dead or alcoholics. He was known to be a quiet man who didn't drink or chase women, but instead spent his time, you know, filing his spurs, making sure his gear was in good working order and reading. In 1973, the FBI came calling. Uh, Remember, Dallas had been issued a warrant for draft dodging. And they dragged him back to Ohio to face the charges. And accounts differ on this. Some say that the government had failed to send him, you know, follower paperwork while others say that Dallas was able to convince both the judge and the jury that he honestly had no idea that he was a a wanted man. In any event, he was eventually acquitted of the charges. The case was dropped. Claude was left with a very deep distrust of the government following this incident. He returned to Nevada and was dismayed to discover that a lot of the larger ranches that he had been working for had been bought out by corporate owners who introduced new methods and equipment that Claude found distasteful and he eventually moved on, heading out to northern Nevada. Remember, he was a trapper before he had been anything else. And when he moved to northern Nevada, he decided that he you know, he could make a living off of trapping and selling the pelts because there was a big boom in the country at this point, you know, in the early to mid-1970s in the fur trade. 
unfortunately for Dallas, when he got there, he discovered that a lot of amateurs who didn't know what they were doing and had no respect for the land or the animals had had the same idea as he did, and they really flooded the area. And this had the effect of states implementing much more regulation on trapping as well as shortening the trapping season in order to, you know, protect the animals from over-hunting. And a lot of these individuals began to partake in poaching. Unfortunately, Claude was one of those who ended up getting caught up in poaching. In fact, in 1976, he was given a citation for using illegally baited traps. A couple of different officers who had dealings with Dallas at this point of in time said that he wasn't like the other, you know, these weekend warrior trappers who were coming out there to catch a few animals and make a couple dollars, you know, get rich quick scheme kind of thing. Uh, he, in fact, told one officer that they were welcome to come into his camp so long as they left their badge outside. And when the officer told him that he could not leave his badge outside, Claude's reported to have said to him, then don't come into my camp. And they saw this as a really a antagonistic stance from him. Because of this, it seems that, you know, the Department of Fish and Wildlife were really targeting Dallas. They had this impression that he was catching hundreds of animals a year illegally, which according to other fur trappers was not the case at all. In fact, Dallas spent the majority of his time out in the wilderness simply surviving, with one individual who encountered him at a fur sale stating that he showed up with only 14 or 15 pelts, which, if you know anything about the fur trade, is a really low number. Now, in early December of 1980, Dallas decided he'd had enough of Nevada, and he moved across the state line into Idaho, setting in a place called Bull Camp on the Owie River. This was an area that was not unfamiliar to Dallas. He had trapped there in the past. Setting out to move his camp, he took two mules with him, his trap and some camping gear as well as firearms and a non-resident trapping license. Dallas didn't do all of the moving and heavy lifting by himself. In fact, he had a number of friends who helped him, you know, move his camp and set it up. Which, when you consider how much of a loner he seemed to be, make come across as fairly odd, but he was a rugged individual living amongst other rugged individuals, and they would do things like this for each other. 
you know, sometimes putting the somebody up in exchange for work and what have you. And basically the whole uh, cowboy lifestyle. Now, there's a number of ideas as to why Dallas moved his camp. One given is that there might have been too much competition from, you know, these newbie trappers and that they were either over hunting the game or scaring them off or that he just became fed up dealing with their shenanigans and their inexperience. Other reasons, you know, that have been speculated at include that, you know, the area had become fairly populated and, again, he wasn't a real big people person. The last one that I have come across is that he might have felt that he was being unfairly targeted by the Bureau of Fish and Games, who, again, as noted, were kind of targeting him because he was different than the other trappers in that he didn't just do it as, you know, weekend sport or something that he did off and on. He actually lived out in the wilderness for long stretches of time. And when he was out on the range, naturally he was, you know, catching his own food, which was seen as poaching, which my personal opinion, if it's for your own consumption or the consumption of your family, should not be a crime. It's when you're going out and taking, you know, a group of deer or something and then trying to sell the meat or the pelts that personally I think that's where, you know, if there's going to be a law concerning that, that's where it should be. I know we where we live in Pennsylvania... The area is absolutely overrun with deer, and it's worse the more people who move into the area from New York and New Jersey because they have this idea that these wild animals are like pets, so then they go out and feed them, and the animals become fairly fearless of people, so then you have the uh, deer coming into your yard and basically eating anything that's not tied down or underneath a rock. Because these people, in addition to thinking that these animals are cute and friendly, they're also not into hunting, so the population is massively out of control, and there's not enough food out in the wilderness to support this population. And unfortunately, this leads to other consequences, such as the fact that we've had an explosion in the bear population in the last year or so. With Because the animals are going to go where the food is, the deer are coming around the people because they their population's out of control, and as a consequence, the bear are following the deer. So, that's just my rant on it, I understand why Claude was doing what he was doing, and I see nothing wrong with it. I honestly think that more people should be doing what he was doing. You know, you see a buck in the yard, it's 5 o'clock in the morning, shoot it, and your family's got meat for the next month and a half. It would keep everything in balance. But at any event, 
you know, there was a plethora of reasons why Claude decided to leave Nevada for Idaho. The area he had settled in, Bull Basin, uh, had been leased to by the Bureau of Land Management to Don Carlin's 45 Ranch as a wintering ground for his cattle. Now, there were other individuals who were poaching on the land. And this is where the story, there's some conflicting accounts. Apparently, there were poachers who were taking sage grouse on the land. And this worried the Carlin family. Which is understandable, because if BLM just starts looking into it, they might suspect that the family that they leased the land to was responsible for the poaching. Around Christmas time of 1980, Don Carlin's son, Eddie, went out to Bull Basin, and he came across Claude Dallas stopping by his camp. And while he was there, Eddie noticed two illegal bobcat hides as well as a deer which had been poached. According to Eddie, when he informed Dallas that the Idaho Fish and Game Wardens were likely to check out the area, Dallas is supposed to have retorted, I'll be ready for them, before going on to explain that he settled all of his problems with a gun. Now, Eddie Carlin left Dallas's camp feeling somewhat uneasy and went back to reconnoiter with his father. He told his father about the encounter with Dallas as well as the fact that he had seen signs that the sage grass had been poached and they decided to go to a nearby reservation and use a telephone, at which point they contacted the Idaho Fish and Games Department. Now, apparently they knew one of the wardens, a man by the name of Bill Pogue, and they actually called him at his house and registered a complaint about the sage grouse being poached Although at that time, they never mentioned Dallas. So, Officer Pogue and Conley Elms, another warden, went out to the Carlin Ranch and spoke with the family. When they were getting ready to leave, Eddie Carlin's wife mentioned Claude Dallas, and it was at this point that the... Carlin family informed them of Claude being on the land and that they needed to be careful of him as he didn't seem to be like the other poachers in the area. So Elms and Pope eventually made it out to Bull Camp and looked into the poaching of the sage grouse before making their way to Claude Dallas's camp on January 5th, 1981. When they arrived at the camp, Dallas was there along with a friend of his by the name of Jim Stevens. 
who was a potato farmer from Winnemucca and a friend of Dallas. Stories differ about what happened next. Uh, one story states that the men were came to the camp and Dallas attacked them, killing them both. While the story that Dallas related is that Stevens had come out to the camp to deliver supplies to him as well as see how he was doing and Stevens had remained at the camp while Dallas went about unloading the supplies from the Ford Blazer and when he came back to the camp both conservation officers were already there. According to Dallas, Pogue who was armed, asked for Stevens' pistol and unloaded it before handing it back to him. Now, a number of different accounts on this also exist. Stevens said that Pogue began, you know, heavily questioning Dallas as to, you know, the animal pelts that he had while Elms went inside the his tent, at which point Pogue drew his weapon. Now, what isn't disputed is that Dallas shot both men. One story has it that when Elms came back out of the tent carrying his, the two bobcat pelts, Dallas opened fire with a 357 revolver which Stevens did not see until it was too late as he had turned away in embarrassment believing his friend who he had driven more than five hours to visit was about to be arrested. Dallas in turn said that when Pogue drew his weapon and Elm was still inside the tent that's when he drew his own gun and shot Pogue. Hearing the sound, Elms came out of the tent and Dallas shot him as well. Afterwards, Dallas went into the tent and returned with a 22 caliber rifle. And he stood over both of the officers and shot them once in the head with it, killing them. According to Stevens, Dallas then turned to him and said, I swore I'd never be arrested again. I'm sorry I got you into this, buddy. You've got to help me get rid of these bodies. And Stevens decided that he would indeed help his friend remove the bodies. Dallas busied himself burning evidence at the camp before loading Pogue's body onto one of the mules and bringing it up to the top of a plateau that was nearby. After which, he came back down to the camp and found Stevens with Elm's body. Now, Stevens had been supposed to load the other man's body onto one of the mules, but Elms was a fairly large man, supposedly weighing upwards around 300 pounds, and the mule was unable to take that kind of weight. So they discussed it for a few minutes before arriving at the conclusion that the only way they were going to be able to move Elms' body would be to quarter it, that is to cut it into pieces. 
However, neither man had it within them to do this to the body. So somehow, Dallas was able to drag Elm's body down to the nearby river and roll it into the water. Afterwards, the two men drove the plazer with Pogue's body in the back, 105 miles down to Paradise Hill, where they stopped at George Nielsen's home and awakened him. Nielsen lent Dallas his pickup truck, and after loading Pogue's body into it, Dallas drove off, uh, returning after midnight with the truck empty. He had dropped Officer Pogue's body into a coyote den. Afterwards, Nielsen gave Claude a ride down to Sand Pass Road, which is about 13 miles away from Nielsen's home. So the next day, Stevens and the Nielsen family went to the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office and told them about the killings, at which point an all-points bulletin was put out for Claude. Unfortunately for law enforcement, they were not of the same caliber men that Claude was, and for all intents and purposes, he had banished, living off the land, hiding out in abandoned houses and trailers, and he would remain uh, off the radar for the next 15 months. Sunday, April 15, 1982, found Claude hiding out in a trailer in an area known by locals as Poverty Flat. By this point, the federal and state governments were, you know, desperately trying to bring the outlaw Claude to justice. And what happened next is almost right out of a movie. Apparently, Claude was inside the trailer when a helicopter flew overhead, alerting him that law enforcement had caught up with him. Now, Claude Dallas, being Claude Dallas, was not about to go down so easily. He dove out of a window and ran to an old Ford pickup truck before plowing through a barbed wire fence that supposedly sent the the truck soaring five feet into the air before he took off across the prairie. Two five-man SWAT teams a slew of other federal and state agents and about a dozen other lawmen armed with M-16s, shotguns, and a rocket launcher gave chase. The cops sprayed the truck with gunfire, wounding Claude in his left heel. He crawled from the truck, dragging a lever-action rifle with him, and hid in some nearby sagebrush, only to surrender quietly a few minutes later. I mean, you've got to imagine how these cops felt. There was a $20,000 reward for Claude's capture, 
and they'd had numerous tips and leads and reported sightings, and, you know, they ended up catching him by chance, as it were, not far from where he had shot the two fish and game wardens. Naturally, the state of Idaho was out for blood trying to get, you know, life sentences on Claude on two first-degree murder charges, but Claude's legend had really started to grow in the 15 months that he was on the run with people. A lot of people in the area siding with him, you know, this real last American outlaw. And he was able to convince the jury that the entire situation was escalated by Officer Pogue, who had acted aggressively with him by drawing his weapon. And in the end, the jury convicted him in October of 1982 of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm in the commission of the crime. One juror later remarked, that he believed Dallas was acting in self-defense when he shot Pogued. On January 4, 1983, Judge Edward Lodge sentenced Dallas to the maximum that he could sentence him to given what he had been convicted of and gave him 30 years. Naturally, Dallas attempted to appeal this conviction, and it was shot down. And you must be thinking, this has got to be the end of Claude Dallas, but it's actually far from it. On March 30th, 1986, in a state prison east of Kuna, Idaho, Claude Dallas escaped custody. Now, the official story that had was put out at the time was that Dallas had cut through two fences before escaping into the desert. Unfortunately, that was untrue, and it really helped to fan the myth of Claude Dallas. Um, there was so much speculation in law enforcement circles as to the veracity of the story that... The Idaho Attorney General actually opened an 18-month investigation into the official tale in 2001. And what they came back with is that prison officials faked the fence cutting after Dallas had escaped in an effort to cover up the fact that he had outwitted the prison staff and walked out the front door with a group of visitors shortly before 8pm on March 30th. The next morning the warden showed off two cut sections of chain link fence telling the reporters that everyone knew he was going to escape. Another member of the prison staff said, you give Claude Dallas six miles and you might as well give him the country. Oh, we'll, we'll find him. It might take a century, but we'll find him. Some have likened Dallas's escape to the Kennedy assassination in that, you know, everyone seems to have a theory as to how he escaped 
with some saying he actually did the cutting himself, others that he walked out with the group of visitors, and others still saying that he used the visitors coming to prison as a cover for him to make his escape by cutting through the fence. In any event, Dallas vanished for almost a year before being arrested outside of a convenience store in Riverside County, California. To give you some idea as to the folklorish nature that Claude Dallas had affected in the minds of people in southwestern Idaho at this point, he was brought up on charges of escaping from prison, and he was acquitted of them in 1987. Obviously, this infuriated prison officials and flabbergasted them at the same time as they really had an open and shut case, but the jury didn't agree. After this acquittal, he was moved around to various prisons first in Nebraska and New Mexico before being moved to a high-security state prison in Kansas in 1989. So you might be thinking, you know, that Dallas is, you know, died in prison or something, but that's not the case. Dallas completed the final three, three weeks of his 30-year sentence in Idaho at Orfino in 2005, being released in February of 2005 after serving 22 years of his sentence. His sentence was reduced by eight years due to good behavior. This is, you know, taking into account that he had escaped prison and everyone knew it, but, you know, it hadn't been convicted of it. He killed two game wardens and, you know, walked out after 22 years. And unfortunately, I was unable to find much information concerning Claude Dallas post-2005. He was spotted at one point in Grouse Creek, Utah, and later was seen living in the Alaskan wilderness. So basically, he killed these two wardens and, after 22 years, picked up his life right where he had left off, as at the time of the murders, he had spoken to friends and talked about possibly going up into the wilderness of Canada or even into the Alaskan wilderness. So it seems like that is exactly what he has done. That is it for the Deathcast this week. I hope you enjoyed this story. It's a little shorter than most, but I thought it was a really interesting, good palate cleanser considering the nature of the last two cases we covered. Um, it's kind of awe-inspiring to think about what Claude Dallas did and how he lived his life and continues to live his life. Uh, almost a, you know, 20th slash 21st century Jeremiah Johnson who just goes out into the wilderness and lives off the land doing as he pleases. Again, if you enjoy the show, 
please considering subscribing and leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. The Deathcast is a production of Quartz Creek Publishing. Until next week, I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. Stay safe and stay morbid. Welcome, welcome, welcome to, to the Dead Cast.